Hello and welcome to CIA Files, True Stories of U.S. Intelligence. I am your host, Topher M. Ford. As always with me is uh, Brandon Givens. Brandon, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm about to have a birthday. Yay me. Oh, wow. Happy birthday. I just had one, so <laughs> we are almost the same age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We Going to school together, yeah. <laughs> We're in our 40s. Yeah. It, it's weird because I don't feel like an adult at all, even though I just bought a house and all of that stuff. Yeah, I still feel um, like I'm about 19, not in health, but in emotional maturity, I guess I'd say. <laughs> yeah, well, the yeah, so. of getting older is realizing that all the adults in your life are faking it the whole time. Yeah, that's disappointing. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, like the CIA and this whole intelligence stuff, you know, we're talking about Stevenson, who had kind of invented American intelligence in a sense, and um, or him and his buddies helped set it up. They were that's just right. making it up as they went, up, went along. They, they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, <laughs> that's a uh, yeah, nice segue, Brandon. That's our episode today. Uh, <laughs> William Samuel Stevenson, um, a.k.a. Intrepid, the... Uh, man who brought the British spy service to the United States. And he's like the um, inspiration for James Bond, or one of them. I know there are a couple. One of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, Ian Fleming is, James Bond was kind of an am amalgam of different spies, but Stevenson is definitely one of the big players. And Stevenson is the one where the, the vodka martinis came from because they drank a lot of those. And, uh, yeah. So what what you're telling me is um, James Bond was Canadian. <laughs> he maybe he may have been. <laughs> kind of change changes the changes it a little bit changes the hey. the flavor. Hey, you mind if I scoot in here in the shower with you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me. Sorry. 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 License to kill. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Oh, I, I said that wrong. Sorry. It's sorry. 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 I can't do a Canadian accent. Sorry. It's, but yeah, this is an interesting episode. One of the things that I'm, that I really liked about it or that we didn't get into very much that I really want to learn more about is what William Stevenson and his, uh, compadres, if you will, did after world war ii so this is gonna our story starts right before world war one then we go into world war ii and that's most of the story but it's the stuff that he did after world war ii that i've been really fascinated with because he you know but it's something uh, um we'll talk about it let's we'll, let's listen to the episode um this is william samuel stevenson aka intrepid we are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. These records that we've uncovered don't tell the story. This is CIA Files. They tell pieces of it. True stories of U.S. intelligence. People often ask me how closely the hero of my thrillers, James Bond, resembles a true live secret agent. To begin with, James Bond is not, in fact, a hero, 
but an efficient and not very attractive blunt instrument in the hands of government. And though he is a meld of various qualities I noted among secret service men and commandos in the last war, he remains, of course, a highly romanticized version of the true spy. The real thing, who may be sitting next to you as you read this, is another kind of beast altogether. But the man sitting alone now in his study in New York is so much closer to the spy of fiction, and yet so far removed from James Bond or Our Man in Havana, that only the removal of the cloak of anonymity he has worn since 1940 allows us to realize, to our astonishment, that men of super qualities can exist, and that such men can be super spies, and, by any standard, heroes. Such a man is the quiet Canadian, otherwise Sir William Stevenson, MCDFC, known throughout the war to his subordinates and friends and to the enemy as Little Bill. He is the man who became one of the great secret agents of the last war, and it would be a foolish person who would argue his credentials. To which I would add, from my own experience, that he is a man of few words, and has a magnetic personality, and the quality of making anyone ready to follow him to the ends of the earth. Ian Fleming Before the Second World War, the United States had no dedicated spy service. Some branches of the military had their own methods of gathering intelligence, mostly from intercepting enemy communications, but they all operated independently and rarely coordinated their efforts or shared their intelligence. Once the U.S. joined the war, leaders quickly realized that they needed a separate organization committed exclusively to gathering foreign intelligence and reporting it to the president and military leaders. They received help from one of the world's most successful spies, a Canadian inventor turned intelligence master named William Samuel Stevenson, otherwise known as Intrepid. William Samuel Clouston Stanger was born on 23rd of January, 1897, in Point Douglas, Winnipeg, Manitoba. A few years after William was born, his father died, leaving his mother with three children and no way to support them. So she gave young William to the Stevensons, a slightly less poor Icelandic family who lived in Point Pleasant. In school, he seemed to be intelligent and highly motivated. According to Spartacus Educational, one of his school teachers, Jean Moffat, said, William Stevenson was a bookworm who loved boxing. A wee fellow, but a real one for a fight. Of course, you see, he was the man of the house since the time he was a toddler. From the outset of the First World War, Stevenson was determined to cross the Atlantic and fight the Germans. He worked as a telegram messenger until the tender age of 16 when he volunteered with the Canadian Expeditionary Force. In 1914, he ended up in Buckinghamshire, England. He served with the Light Infantry fighting on the Western Front. He soon returned to England after suffering from exposure to nerve gas. Instead of returning to the trenches, Stevenson began studying aviation before joining the Royal Flying Corps. He quickly distinguished himself as a daredevil pilot after he joined the 73rd Squadron and began flying missions over France. In a Sopwith Camel biplane, he shot down from 12 to 18 enemies, according to intrepidsociety.org. 
He earned the Distinguished Flying Cross in 1918. That same year, he was shot down over enemy lines by friendly fire and was captured by German forces. French newspaper Avion reported soon after, It appears that on the afternoon of July 28th, Captain Stevenson decided to make a lone patrol of the line. Regular scout patrols had been canceled for the day, owing to stormy weather. About four miles within the Bosch lines, one of our reconnaissance machines was being attacked by seven Fokker biplanes, which had been hiding in the dense clouds a few meters above. According to American balloon observers, a British machine of the pattern Stevenson flew suddenly dived out of the clouds and without hesitation attacked the leader of the enemy formation, shooting him down in flames. There followed a terrific battle in which the daring captain made excellent strategic use of the clouds and succeeded in shooting down another German machine while a third went spinning to the ground out of control. The report then went on to explain that Stevenson was shot down. France has reason to cherish the memory of this brilliant young Canadian pilot and to pray that he descended alive. Descend alive he did, where he was taken prisoner by the Germans. While imprisoned, Stevenson became infatuated with the German can opener, which he decided was his ticket to civilian wealth. Stevenson managed to escape the POW camp with the pilfered German can opener. He took it back to Canada once the war was over. In 1921, he partnered with a man named Charles Wilfred Russell to form a company, quote, to carry on the business of manufacturers, agents, exporters, and importers of hardware goods, cutlery, auto accessories, groceries, timber, and goods, wares, and merchandise of every description. Unfortunately, Canada entered an economic recession around the same time, and they filed for bankruptcy soon after getting started. Stevenson slunk off back to England, leaving behind a mountain of debt to people who'd provided the seed money to get his business off the ground. According to the Intrepid Society, he left in a rather bad odor. He got money from many people in the Icelandic community and didn't pay it back. Then he left town in the dark of the night. In England, Stevenson partnered with one T. Thorne Baker to research sending images over the air. Together, they developed a method for sending images over phone lines. This had a huge impact on communications, especially for the press. This research led to the technology to broadcast moving pictures to television sets. Stevenson began running production of televisions, radios, x-ray machines, and other fantastic new modern wonders. He opened up shiny new showrooms all over England, and soon everyone was buying his electric marvels. Stevenson reshaped Europe and the rest of the world by making wireless television transmission possible and by making TVs and radios widely available. He was also commended for his marketing savvy and promoting his new inventions. An article in the Manitoba Free Press from 1923 said, Due partly to his efforts and a tremendous advertising campaign, broadcasting was established in England on a highly efficient and comprehensive scale within a few short months, and his companies were the first in England to produce a complete range of broadcasting equipment suitable for public use. He would put his marketing skills and expertise on broadcasting media to good use when he began working on propaganda campaigns during World War II. But before that, he would build a massive fortune. Famed fighter pilot, British spy, and beloved children's author 
Roald Dahl said of Stevenson, There's no question about that. I mean the fact that he became a millionaire about the same time as Lord Beaverbrook, and at about that same age, 27 or 28. He came over here and took over pressed steel at that age, and it was not so easy to become a millionaire as it is today. He became rich as soon as he wanted to, more or less. Stevenson eventually moved into industrial manufacturing. He became the head of one of the largest cement manufacturers in England, Alpha Cement. He also joined the board of, and eventually purchased, Pressed Steel Company, which made the vast majority of car bodies sold in the United Kingdom. His role as an industrial goods magnate afforded him access to German manufacturing. He quickly discovered that the Nazis had focused all of their efforts into war production. He also learned of the Nazis' blitzkrieg plans. He took all of this information to the British government, who seemed less concerned with the information than he was. So he formed his own private intelligence organization disguised as a mining company, the British Pacific Trust, and built his own network of informants, which he called the British Industrial Secrets Service. This allowed him to gather wartime intelligence on Nazi resources and manufacturing. His information became invaluable to the British government early in the war. This included a tip that led to the discovery of Hitler's plan to collect heavy water, which would aid their efforts to develop a nuclear bomb. He would eventually give control of the BISS to the British government, where it became the Industrial Secret Intelligence. When Winston Churchill became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in 1940, he sent Stevenson to the United States to meet with President Roosevelt and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to establish a relationship between the two governments and to share intelligence. Their meeting went well, with Roosevelt ordering the FBI to work closely with British intelligence. The two governments began sharing intelligence openly with one another right away. Stevenson took the good news back to Churchill, who responded by saying, You know what you must do at once. We have discussed it most fully, and there is a complete fusion of minds between us. You are to be my personal representative in the United States. I will ensure that you have the full support of all the resources at my command. I know that you will have great success, and the good Lord will guide your efforts as he will ours. The job Stevenson knew he must do was to convince the United States to join the war. Churchill appointed Stevenson head of the British Security Coordination, a vague office he could work from to accomplish his goals of swaying U.S. sentiment however he saw fit. To think of America's attitude to World War II, you have to go back to World War I. There were lots of World War I vets who returned with PTSD. They came back to a nation in the middle of the Prohibition Drug War. Things were a mess. They'd been told World War I was the war to end all wars, and that clearly didn't work out. Books such as Merchants of Death become bestsellers, and this book pins U.S. involvement in World War I on arms profiteering. Another book that was very popular at the time was called Johnny, Get Your Gun. It was made into a movie. You can see clips of it in the Metallica 1 video. It was very anti-war and, again, quite popular. 
So the nation, it's wanting to avoid the same mistakes that got it into World War I. It passes the Neutrality Act of 1935. This act basically said the U.S. could not trade arms with any warring nation, and U.S. citizens traveled on warring ships at their own risk. He set up shop with the team in Rockefeller Center and got to work. One of his biggest practical concerns was the America First Committee, co-founded by famous pilot and terrible parent Charles America Lindbergh. America First was started in 1940, after the war was going in Europe, but before the U.S. was in it. It was a pretty prominent organization. It was started by the Quaker Oats heir, Robert D. Stewart, Jr. I guess that's fitting, but I don't think he was a real Quaker. You know, Quakers being pacifist and all. He tapped the head of Sears Roebuck to lead the organization, and Charles Lindbergh was its public face. JFK and Gerald Ford donated money to the group. It seemed to have been pretty popular. Even before being in the America First Committee, Lindbergh was against Roosevelt. In his speeches, he encouraged listeners to look beyond the speeches and look at who owned the papers. On September 11, 1941, Roosevelt announced that the Navy will attack German ships in waters necessary to national defense. On the same day, Lindbergh gives a speech where he insists the pull to war was from Roosevelt, the British, and American Jews. He says that the Jewish ownership of newspapers and movie production companies, the press in general, is their greatest danger to this country. Stevenson made the America First Committee, which had nearly a million members, his primary target. He had isolationist leaders harassed. He had handbills passed around at isolationist rallies naming speakers as Nazi sympathizers. He had one of his fake isolationist groups deliver a card to famed isolationist Hamilton Fish, marked as being from Hitler, which read, De Fuhrer thanks you for your loyalty. A very common theme that you see amongst fascists or uh, far right and far left is this idea that the media is controlled by the secret society or a group or undesirables and that the information cannot be trusted. The point is very often to make people select the specific sources of information being the party itself. It also feeds the narrative that those that disagree with them are part of some sort of other that wants to harm the country. Another method for swaying the public toward joining the war was through the Council for Democracy, a group that expressed counters to the arguments and sentiments for staying out of the war. They demonized Hitler with ads and editorials in over 11,000 newspapers across the country. Stevenson's group funded every pro-interventionist organization they could find, giving them money and what other services or resources those groups might need. Stevenson created a large team of operatives and put them to work labeling every isolationist as a Nazi sympathizer, thus pioneering the call-them-a-Nazi tactic for winning arguments 
decades before the invention of the internet. One reason the general public wanted to stay out of the war in Europe was that many considered Hitler's victory inevitable. People argued that America would get involved in the conflict only to be left alone to fight Germany and clean up the mess. To counter this, Stevenson created and circulated news stories to convince people that the tide was turning for the Allies and that they were gaining the upper hand. A Daily Mail article cited the story of the raid on the French town of Bourg-sur-Mer. News reports said, One party of parachutists, heavily armed with Tommy guns and hand grenades, overpowered the airfield guards, rushed to the control room, and seized its occupants. A second party attacked the barracks and captured a number of German pilots. Meanwhile, the third group scattered over the airport, destroying about 30 planes. This news made its way around the world to Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and of course, the United States. But it was all fake. The entire scenario was fictionalized to persuade the public toward believing Allied chances were higher than they thought. This close relationship with the news media is another tool that U.S. intelligence would utilize on a regular basis in the future. Stevenson needed help in persuading or bypassing American isolationist politicians, so he called on an American friend he'd made during the First World War, William Wild Bill Donovan. Donovan set up meetings for Stevenson with key U.S. cabinet members to discuss how to gift Britain 50 old-age destroyers without breaking the terms of U.S. neutrality. Roosevelt did not favor neutrality. So the next few years involved businesses and Roosevelt trying to get around the acts and Congress modifying them. First, some American oil and car companies sell arms to Franco in Spain because it's a civil war, not a declared war, so the law didn't apply. Congress fixes that and in an appeasement to Roosevelt adds cash and carry. That meant that the U.S. could sell arms as long as the buyer picked them up in the U.S. and paid cash. The idea was England could take advantage of such a deal since it had such a strong navy. While in 37 Japan invaded China, China was dependent on weapons, but only Japan could take advantage of cash and carry. So Roosevelt declared that the Neutrality Act didn't apply because Japan and China never officially declared war and he'd let British ships take weapons to China. This made the isolationists very unhappy. Roosevelt's policy was quarantining aggression. In 39, the Germans invade Czechoslovakia. At this point, cash and carry had expired, so the full embargo was in place. After some wrangling, cash and carry was renewed because they figured out they couldn't prevent neutral nations from buying the arms and then selling them. In March of 1941, Roosevelt got Lend-Lease pushed through. Basically, the arms weren't sold. They were exchanged for leased access to military bases. At this point, though, the U.S. Navy is de facto at war. German submarines are attacking U.S. ships, and U.S. ships are escorting merchant vessels. Donovan made a trip to England to talk to leaders there. 
He came back and convinced FDR that the British could actually beat the Nazis, but only if they received help from America. He also started writing his own articles about the dangers of a Nazi victory in the war. The BSC also worked to convince Roosevelt and the rest of America that the Nazis were attempting to invade South America and the Atlantic Ocean wouldn't be enough to keep America safe from Hitler's ambitions. Stevenson fed Roosevelt fictional information about British efforts, which Roosevelt would often repeat in speeches to the public and to congressmen in order to sway public sentiment and counter-isolationists. In 1941, Roosevelt gave Bill Donovan a new job and title, Coordinator of the Information Office. His job was to coordinate intelligence between the U.S. and Great Britain. Roosevelt and Donovan both knew America needed to join the war, but they needed to sell it to the public, especially since Roosevelt had gotten re-elected on a platform of staying out of Europe's Nazi problems. Japan made their jobs much easier with the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 12, 1941. After that, sentiment shifted pretty fast, and the United States jumped into the fight. The surprise attack on Pearl Harbor was a gruesome lesson on the importance of intelligence coordination and analysis. With this in mind, FDR created the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, and put Donovan in charge in 1942. Stevenson helped guide the development and structure of the OSS, basing much of it off of the British Intelligence Service. The UK's official directorate of military intelligence began in 1873. It itself was born out of the Department of Topography and Statistics. So focus on that, topography, terrain, geography, and statistics, knowing about a lot of facts. It's not much different than what we imagined for today's military intelligence. But now we have satellite images of terrain. We have sociologists and spies slash statisticians monitoring the situations in other countries. Their literacy levels, religious strife, number of fighting age citizens, industrial capabilities, and so on. Basically, the enemy's ability to make war. World War I comes along, and the branches are given different sections. Here are a few. Might sound familiar. MI1, interception and cryptoanalysis. MI2 and 3 were geographical information, but about different parts of the world. Hmm. MI5, counterintelligence and dealing with the civilian population. MI6, legal and economic section, as well as personnel and arms trafficking. They spied on specific people and the movement of goods. This is why business people were very often recruited as spies. They can travel without suspicion and query about supplies, like what's being bought up and what's being moved. And my personal favorite, MI7, propaganda. Presently, MI5 is somewhat analogous to the FBI. It's part of the home office. And MI6, somewhat analogous to the CIA, being responsible to the foreign office.
Once America was officially in the war, Stevenson turned to other efforts. His office worked on code-breaking, which revealed at least one German spy operating on U.S. soil. They were also concerned with attempts to sabotage American factories that churned out bullets, missiles, and other wartime necessities. They managed to obtain military codes from Vichy, France, as well as Italy, allowing the Allies to monitor their communications. Stevenson also founded and ran Camp X, a training facility in Ontario for OSS operatives. You may recall from a previous episode that name as the place where one George Hunter White learned and then taught his own talents. The head trainer there, William Ewart Fairborn, stated his training philosophy. Get tough. Get down in the gutter when it all costs. I teach what is called gutter fighting. There's no fair play, no rules except one. Kill or be killed. At Camp X, operatives gained skills like close quarters combat, bomb making, and sabotage techniques. From there, they would go on missions to sabotage or destroy bridges, fuel depots, railways, and anything else that might hamper enemy efforts. Once the war wrapped up, Stevenson quickly boxed up the papers and materials of the BSC's American operations and shipped them to Canada before the American government could discover how often they'd been lied to. He commissioned Roald Dahl, along with four other Brits, to comb through the documents and produce a record of all their operations. Dahl later said about Stevenson, He pulled a lot over on Hoover. He pulled a few things over on the White House, too, now and again. I wrote a little bit, but eventually I called Bill, and I told him it's a historian's job. This famous history of the BSC through the war in New York was written by Tom Hill and a few other agents. After the war, Stevenson retired to Jamaica for a short period before he got bored and went back to making stacks of cash. He, along with Wild Bill and a slew of other intelligence agents he'd worked with, formed the British Canadian American Corporation, which was later renamed World Commerce Corporation. The WCC established trade to the newly developing economies of small nations, providing them with crucial building materials like concrete and steel. He also very likely remained active in global intelligence. The WCC also filled a new gap in global trade conveniently left behind by the now-defeated Nazis. In the 1960s, Stevenson commissioned H. Montgomery Hyde to write the story of the BSC's escapades based on information Stevenson provided to Hyde. From that information, Hyde wrote The Quiet Canadian. Then, in the 1970s, he commissioned William Stevenson, no relation, to write a second book, which became A Man Called Intrepid. Both of these books have been accused of being works of fantasy. Stevenson biographer David Hunt said of The Quiet Canadian, Its numerous invented stories, based on briefing from Stevenson, created a certain sensation, but it still came short of Stevenson's inflated ideas. And as fresh revelations of British successes in the intelligence sphere continued to appear, for instance, the ultra-secret, he clearly wished to claim credit for them. 
Another intelligence officer, Hugh Trevor Roper, said a man called Intrepid was start to finish utterly worthless, and that Stevenson was a fraud who fooled the world into believing he was a master spy. When considering these accusations, it's hard not to recall that Stevenson's biggest talent was lying. Stevenson spent his old age in Bermuda, where he stayed until he died in 1989. True to his need to know more than everyone else, before his death, he told his daughter, I don't want people to know that I'm dead until I'm buried. He was buried in secret at St. John's Church in Hamilton, Bermuda. He was 93 years old. Okay, well, that was uh, intrepid. Good old uh, Bill Stevenson there. Um, it's interesting. I feel bad, too, because um, as we mentioned toward the end of the episode there, a lot of the stuff that we have about Stevenson is stuff that he told us or that, you know, uh, either firsthand or secondhand because he commissioned, you know, a, a few biographies where he was the main, if not only, source of information for them. And then afterward, you have the other historians who come through and do like the real uh, research of digging through files and doing interviews and stuff. And they say Stevenson was kind of full of shit, which wouldn't surprise me. So that's something I wouldn't mind looking into more in the future. <laughs> well, yeah, there's uh, if you want to know about somebody, talk to their ex-wife. They'll tell you everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it will not be biased at all. It will all be the truth. I wonder if those exactly uh, as it happened, those original Icelandic investors that were probably mostly like middle class, if he ever repaid them the money that he owed them, considering that he ended up being mega wealthy. Yeah, I, I'm curious about that too. Yeah, and and well, it is kind of like the whole thing with him being so far ahead on technology. I hope he remembered the little guys from before. Yeah, it's like he was involved in telecommunications from the ground floor, it seems. And So, yeah, that's William Stevenson. It's kind of a, a seed into the development of the uh, Western intelligence community in general because a lot of other intelligence infrastructure, I think, also starts to pick up here. And it could be it can be summed up as um, shady business dealings, cheating creditors, lots and lots of sex, and lots and lots of alcohol. Oh my and god! Du- and dubious loyalties. That we, pretty much just <laughs> summarized it. I, as you guys listen to these episodes, especially the ones, and we're going to be doing some more from this time period. The intelligence officers. Uh, British intelligence officers and American intelligence officers, and I'm sure a lot of others too. And the amount of alcohol that is involved with the planning and decision-making and the execution of everything that they do, they were drunk all the time. (laughs) Your intelligence is only as good as your least drunk operative. Which means most of your intelligence is not very good. (laughs) It's just, oh man, I just, uh, I just couldn't get over it as I'm like reading and I'm like, oh, this one guy, he drinks a lot. 
oh, I bet he was kind of a problem. I'm like, <laughs> oh, but this other guy drinks a lot too. Oh, but wait, were they all drinking? Like all the time, they're just all drinking whiskey? Yeah, well, it was a state-dependent learning. If they were sober, they wouldn't know how to spy. <laughs> they're like, oh, man, I don't really know. Right, I, I guess. I have a drink, and now, oh, yeah, now I remember. So how many of these coups were like, uh, well, no, we got drunk and sorry. Uh, <laughs> seemed like a good idea at the time. But yeah, um, let us know what you think of the episode. Um, like and review hit the subscribe you know those are all things that help us if you like what we're doing here um be sure to check us out on social media ciafiles.net is the website uh you can go to facebook.com slash ciafiles uh, twitter and instagram as ciafiles podcast uh thanks again for listening and we'll be back uh we're back in the saddle with more episodes um we're gonna we're gonna be back on a regular release schedule so thanks for sticking around uh thanks for being patient with us we really appreciate it and we'll talk to you again soon see you next time <laughs>